My name is Matt Moran. I'm one of the pastors of Seven Mile Road. Today, we are finishing Esther. My charge to you today, the reason I am standing up here with this Bible is very simple. My charge to you today is to remember, remember the reversal. But before I explain what I mean in a sermon where I am telling you to remember, I want to acknowledge up front that nobody really likes to be told to, be remember, to remember something, right? In fact, you probably think whenever someone tells you to remember something that it's a little bit annoying, right? We don't like to be nagged. We don't like the assumption that there's a good chance that we've forgotten something. And this manifests itself in questions that we ask ourselves every day, right? Or that someone asks us like, did you remember your keys? Or did you remember the milk? Or make sure you bring your passport? Or have you called your mother yet? Or don't forget to how many, I mean, how many variations are there, right? But the truth is, as much as we might not like to be reminded to remember, we need to. It's hard to survive without some type of memory. So we tend to create elaborate systems to help us to remember, whether you are a digital person and you use iPhone reminders or Google calendars or apps like OmniFocus, or whether you are a little bit more of a paper person, you use your day timer or a notebook, or you have a giant paper calendar. But whatever your method is, it's most likely started because you realize at some point you really can't survive without some type of system to help you to remember. Most of us have experienced at some point the misfortune or embarrassment or even tragedy of a failure to remember. You know what this is like, right? A total breakdown of your memory where you harmed yourself or you disappointed another person. And then ironically, these lapses of memory often become permanently embedded in our brains for the rest of our lives because of the trauma of our failure to remember. When I was 20 years old, I planned a drive across the country. There was no um, particularly strong reason to take this trip other than this is what repressed, formerly homeschooled 20-year-olds do to come of age. And so my friends and I borrowed a van and planned to drive from Pennsylvania, where we met up, to Seattle and back. It was about a 7,000-mile trip. And we pooled our resources. We intended to do this thing in about a week and a half. This was not, um, this was not a well-financed operation. And our money did not, uh, did not extend to things like luxuries like Motel 6s or Days Inns. Um, all of our money was going towards gas and canned food. So our plan was that we would stop along the way at national parks or state parks or something of the like. So we got in a van and we headed west. And we stayed with friends in Chicago the first night. And then we cr- went into Minnesota and crossed the mouth of the Mississippi River. And we were setting up camp at Custer State Park in South Dakota when we realized that I had forgotten the tent poles. Even now, even now, that failure to remember is still permanently embedded in my brain. Now I know that even if you are in seemingly remote places like South Dakota or Wyoming or Montana, 
and you don't see how you can really be bothering anyone, you will still be charged money. People will still expect payment from you if you park your van on their lawn in the middle of the night. (laughs) Now I know that. But I learned this because I failed to remember, right? So today, what am I telling you to remember? I'm telling you this morning to remember the reversal. So let's read the scripture one more time. I will explain what I mean. This is Esther 9, 20 through 28. Mordecai recorded these things. And he sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against them to destroy them and had cast pur, that is cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves, and their offspring, and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written, and at the time appointed every year that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. So, how does the story teach us to remember? If you're sitting here, you probably are not ethnically Jewish. You probably do not celebrate this holiday So what do you do with this story? Well, this story is still for all of God's people. Mordecai is explaining to all the, everyone reading hereafter, kind of how they got here, how this, how they, how this, these events came to pass, how they are still part of God's people. So based on this text, I'm going to make two simple points, starting with this one. Remembrance is a duty. I wouldn't blame you if you heard these verses and thought that this story and this sermon series wraps up in kind of a very anticlimactic way. There was so much action earlier, right? There was a wild party thrown by the king and he lost his queen. There was a beauty pageant that Esther came out of nowhere and won. There was a plot to kill the king that Mordecai foiled. There was a plot to kill the Jews set up by Haman. Esther steps in to plead for his people. There's a plot to kill Mordecai from Haman. Haman's plot gets completely reversed. He hangs, his sons hang, and the Jews win a mighty victory over their enemies. So there's already been all this action in the book. And then if you read this end part, it seems like just kind of a recapitulation of the events. Now it ends without a lot of action and with what seems like kind of a summary or repeating of everything that has already happened. But 
I want you to see here that there's a lot more than anticlimax happening. Mordecai is giving God's people a sacred charge. Remember, this is a charge not just for the Jewish people that Mordecai was writing to, but for all of God's people. Mordecai is explaining to his readers why they are here only because they needed help and it came from the outside. They got it. But I don't blame you if you look at this and think that this charge to remember doesn't seem particularly exciting, right? Memory or remembering is work. In the famous uh, Sherlock Holmes books, and when I say Sherlock Holmes, I don't mean the Robert Downey Jr. movies or the TV show, but the actual books, Holmes is known for having an amazing memory. And he has this sidekick, Watson, who's a scientist. So Watson and Holmes are getting to know each other early on in those books. And at one point, Watson realizes that Holmes knows nothing, absolutely nothing, despite his brilliance about science. He doesn't even know that the earth revolves around the sun. So Watson thinks, this is, this is appalling. How can any educated British person not know that the earth revolves around the sun? So he explains the Copernican theory to Holmes. And Holmes listens, and then he says, that's fascinating. Now I'm going to do my best to forget it. <laughs> Memory is not really fun for most of us, right? It's challenging. And for someone like Holmes, his mind need to be, needed to be completely occupied with facts related to crime and criminology and the solving of mysteries. He thought anything else was basically taking up space in his brain, and he couldn't be bothered with it. It's challenging to remember, right? And when, when you think about memory, you think about probably tests or flashcards or quizzes, and those connotations are generally negative. Holmes felt like he needed his entire brain just to focus on the stuff he needed to survive, to track down criminals. And for most of us, right, memory is burdensome. We only pursue it if it is absolutely necessary or if it's like the lesser of two evils. It's, if it's preferable to the alternative of failure and embarrassment and complete unpreparedness, we may memorize something. So if you've ever, you know, crammed for a test or spent countless hours getting prepped for some sort of presentation, you probably didn't necessarily enjoy that time, but it was probably preferable to the alternative of total failure. But we don't like the obligation to remember to extend any further than it has to. However, if we look at the scripture, we start to see why memory is so vitally important. The scripture says that Mordecai recorded these things. He's a writer. He is capturing the story of God's faithfulness for future generations. And he has taken it as his duty to document everything that has happened, all the details. In other words, afterward, after he documented everything, he took that as his duty and then he passed it on to the rest of his people. After he described the miraculous events which had occurred and the reversal that the Jews had experienced, he wrote letters to all the Jews near and far, and he obligated them to keep this festival. This is a charge. The scripture says obligation. Mordecai was urging all of God's people to keep this holiday. The days that Haman plotted to destroy you, he's saying, 
You be, be, they became the days of your deliverance. So take two days off. Celebrate. Pass the story on to future generations. Don't let your history of salvation be forgotten. And it's obvious from the words that the text uses that the Jews didn't see this as just simply another reminder or something to, on their to-do list. It says that the Jews accepted the task. They firmly obligated themselves, and their resolve was that this story would be passed on to all of their descendants, that the memory would not cease. It says, these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Their resolution was to commemorate these events and to commemorate them forever. They want this holiday, this story, to be remembered for all future generations. And Mordecai is saying more than just take a couple days off and relax. He's saying, make these days of feasting and gladness with gifts of food and gifts to the poor. Feasting, gladness, generosity, generosity to God's people and to the poor. And when I look at that, I think, I think we see it actually takes work to do remembrance well, right? Anyone who throws parties or hosts or has people in their home for holidays knows that it's only the people who come and sit on your couches and eat your food that think these events just sort of magically appear, right? They don't just materialize out of thin air. It actually takes work to make something special. Remembrance needs to be done well. So... Some of you know that in three weeks, uh, Laurel and I, about three weeks, are expecting our first son. And of course, like any, uh, like any Bostonian or any baseball fan, of which I am both, I'm looking forward to seeing my son grow up and teach him about baseball and, of course, about the Red Sox. But you th- think, how do you do that? Do you say something like, yeah, the Red Sox, like, they're, the, they're the team in town. We used to have this guy back in the day called Babe Ruth. Then we traded him, then we didn't win for 86 years, and then in 2004 we beat the Yankees and life has been good since then. You really can't do that, right? That's, that's being too, that's not really remembering something very well. If you want to pass on, if I want to pass something on, I need to say, you need to actually throw the ball around together, right? So we'll need to do that. Then, you, then we have to actually go to Fenway. You have to explain the curse of the Bambino. You need to talk about the green monster and how it's 37 feet high. You need to be able to say, this is Pesky's pole. You need to be able to spell Yastrzemski. You have to explain that in 2004, the curse was reversed, right? Any self-respecting Red Sox fan would agree that you have to do this well. And if you do it well... It is going to take time and emotion, money even, effort. But what father would ever complain and grumble and say, I have to take my son to Fenway to teach him about the Red Sox? So remembrance is duty, but I hope you are seeing that remembrance is also joy. And that is my second point. Remembering the reversal is work, but it is also joy joy. We're not practicing for a final exam, right? That we're not cramming a bunch of information into our heads because we'll be quizzed at the end. We are instead practicing for 
and eternity. The feast of Esther that this book closes with foreshadows the feast that we will have when we sit down with all of God's people at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We worship Jesus who said, in my Father's house are many mansions. I go and prepare a place for you. So we're called to remember the reversal, not through simple memorization of facts, not just mere recitation, but through celebration. We actually party our way into memory as God's people. The destruction of God's people that had been plotted by Haman, if you recall the method by which Haman plotted this destruction, chapter 3 says that he cast purr, and purr is the Persian word for lot. Casting lots is not unlike rolling dice, but in Haman's case, it is actually a little bit more sinister than that because he is plotting the destruction of God's people. This is actually something akin to like an occultish or satanic practice. He's using this mysterious and evil method to try and figure out when it is that he should carry out his genocidal intentions. The holiday that the Jews are celebrating is a celebration that God controls even the seemingly random roll of the dice. His sovereignty extends so far that he even oversees a simple thing like that. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap. The lot is cast, but it's every decision is from the Lord. When we celebrate together as God's people, we are celebrating the reality that God is greater than Satan. God has given us salvation, that he is sovereign over all events, that the deliverance that we needed when evil was plotted against us came from the outside. So do you think when the Jews practiced this type of celebration, do you think it was simply the children sitting around with their blank pieces of papyrus being quizzed on these events? You know, how many sons did Haman have? Spell Ahasuerus, include Greek variants. What was the king's eunuch's name? Locate Susa on a map. Bonus points if you can find adjacent provinces. That's not how they would have been called to remember the reversal, right? Instead, it was a party. It wasn't like confirmation class. It was celebration. This is a feast. It's a comedy. It's when the tables get turned on the villain. This is a time for laughter, a time where we remember that the Scripture tells us that one day all of God's people will feast with him at a banquet that he will throw. Isaiah 25 prophesies this. This is Isaiah 25, 6 through 8. It says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food and a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. 
This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. We are called by God to remember the reversal. That's a duty. It's a sacred obligation. But in the midst of that work, it is also deep, deep abiding joy. Because in our remembering, we anticipate the day when death and sin will be swallowed up forever. So I want to just bring this home with four simple points of application. I want to talk about how practically we can remember the reversal, both on an individual level, in our families or in our own homes, as smaller gospel communities together within this church, and as one church family. How do we remember the reversal? On an individual level, At the beginning of the service, Dan read Psalm 103. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless his holy name. Forget not all his benefits. So what I want you to notice here is that the psalmist, David, is talking to himself. Bless the Lord, O my soul. He is telling himself, in essence, to remember and not to forget. He is actually kind of preaching the gospel to himself here and rehearsing everything that God has done for him. He forgives all your iniquities. He heals all your diseases. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. David is rehearsing those realities to him. Bless the Lord. Remember his benefits. So very often, I think this is true of me on a personal level and on many people that I encounter, our problem is that we are not actually preaching to our own hearts. When we are tempted... When the frustrations and stress of our day are beginning to get the upper hand, when we feel ourselves beginning to yield to temptation, this is the time when we need to preach to our own hearts, to rehearse the truth of God's word over and above our subjective feelings. We need to believe the objective truth of God's word, even in the midst of stress and temptation and the reality that his spirit dwells within us and that he has given us everything that we need for life and for godliness. We remember the reversal on an individual level when we rehearse in our inner being the truth of what God has done for us. Above, over and above, the fickleness of our own feelings. Secondly, how do we remember the reversal on a family level? Well, let me ask you this. On a fa- as a family, or in, uh, yeah, whether it's, whether it's your close family, your extended family, what do you actually celebrate? What are the things that cause you to invite people over and fire up the grill? And what gives you reason to cook and to pour drinks and to celebrate and to laugh and to sing and memorialize? What are those things? As Christians, salvation is something that we celebrate. We tell the story of how God saved us. So I would encourage you in your own homes, tell it and retell it. Laugh about it and sing about it. Whether it is your children coming alive to the gospel for the first time or whether it is you as adults kind of inviting them into that story of how God has worked in you. My mom and my dad came to believe the gospel in the mid-1970s. They were high school students. Neither one of them were raised anywhere near the scripture, and both came from divorced homes. They were exposed to the gospel through like a 1970s high school Jesus freak revival. My mom 
saw the change in her heart first. And she was dating my dad at the time and began to explain some of the gospel to him. She was dating him and doing a little missionary work at the same time. And that isn't really like the recommended way. Okay? But that story is still part of my story. And it reminds me to this day that salvation is not given to us because we're good or because we have the right background or the right education or that we were raised perfectly. It's about God and his sovereignty and his mercy breaking into our hearts. So we celebrate that as a family. Third, how do we remember the reversal as a gospel community? I was challenged thinking about this. It's interesting that the book of Esther begins and ends with a party. At the beginning of the story, people are getting drunk and there's unbelievable wastefulness and women are being demeaned. And we read that and I think, wow, 2,500 years have passed and there hasn't been that much that's changed in the party culture. But the book ends with Mordecai instructing God's people that there is a different way to celebrate. Food, gifts, generosity, concern for the poor, stories, rejoicing. So as Christians, we may not party with wildness or with debauchery, but we do celebrate with the knowledge that God has delivered us from our sins and that our parties here on earth still foreshadow the celebration to come. So in your gospel community, you have a chance to do that. You have the chance to celebrate and to recreate in a way that does show off to each other and to anyone that you are connecting with to the watching world that there is a deeper joy in Jesus. Joy, celebration, recreation. These are outgrowths of a heart that have been touched by the gospel. One of the reasons that we take time to share our personal stories generally in the gospel community setting is because we need to laugh and to enjoy and to remember them together. There is a sense that in those settings, you do function as kind of like the collective memory for one another, being able when one person is weak to remind each other of the faithfulness of God in the past. We have a chance to remember and celebrate together as a gospel community. And then finally, how do we remember the reversal as a whole church? And I would say, we are doing that right now. John Calvin, the reformer, said, we need the gospel preached to us every week, and we need the Lord's Supper to ratify that promise, because we are all partly unbelievers until the day that we die. So Calvin isn't saying that Sunday worship or the taking of the Lord's Supper is re-saving us or anything like that. What he is saying is that our battle with sin and with unbelief and with temptation is such that we desperately need the grace of God in the saints gathered together, in the preached word, and in the sacrament. We need to hear the good news because the nature of our heart is that we so easily drift. Gathering with the saints weekly is vitally important, not because we need to gain favor with God, not because we need to re-earn anything, but because this is his appointed means of grace. It reminds us of reality. Gathering with the saints, hearing the preached word, receiving the sacrament is a shot in the arm to you and a kick in the head to your opponent. You need this in your battle against sin, the world, the devil. Every time we gather together, we remember the reversal. So let me say it again. Remembrance is duty. It's obligation. It's work. We need to work at it with all our strength. But 
Remembering the reversal is also joy because when we remember the reversal, we remember that Jesus has not forgotten us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you in your mercy saw us while we were still a long way off and extended grace to us. And we believe that and we receive that today. Thank you that you have given us means to remind ourselves. We ask that we would walk in the truth of that and the joy of that this week. We pray for it. Amen.